Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME T-O-G-O to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I'm the director of TMA's Education Center, and I produce the TMA Practicable podcast, where we strive to provide CME and actionable quick tips that will help your practice thrive. This program is eligible to count towards one, the eight hours of training on treatment and management of patients with opioid or other substance use disorders that is required for all DEA registered practitioners, and two, the two hours of formal continuing medical education in the study of pain management and prescribing and monitoring of controlled substance that is required by the Texas Medical Board. This program will address a specified topic from the TMB of safe and effective pain management related to the prescription of opioids and other controlled substances, including education regarding standards of care and identification of drug-seeking behavior in patients. Participation in this program in no way implies that the participant has fully met the federal and state mandated training requirements. Participants are solely responsible for ensuring any mandated training requirements are completed. My guest today is Dr. Andre Chen, a board certified addiction medicine specialist in practice at Advanced Pain Care in Austin, Texas. Prior to becoming an addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Chen practiced family medicine for over 20 years and was listed in Austin's Monthly Magazine as a top doctor in 2015 and 2017. Dr. Chen is passionate about helping patients who suffer from compulsive use of pain medication, from craving pain medication, overdose, and loss of control of opioid pain medication. Welcome, Dr. Chen. 
Hello, thanks for having me. Dr. Chen, you recently worked with TMA to record webinars to help physicians meet the DEA's eight-hour training requirement on substance use disorders. Thank you so much for your work on those webinars. I'll post a link to the webinars in the episode description. In the course of working on the webinars, you use the term opioid stewardship. What does that mean to you? So opioid stewardship is any program that focuses on improving opioid prescribing practices, uh, implementing and promoting use of non-opioid pain management strategies, and reducing the risks associated with long-term opioid therapy, such as dependency, overdose, and misuse. In other words, trying to use opioids in a more sustainable manner to ensure that patients receive the right dose of opioids for the right duration while minimizing the potential harm. I liken it to antibiotic stewardship, which is often a hospital-based program that aims to promote more conscientious and appropriate use of antibiotics in order to combat antibiotic resistance and to ensure that antibiotics are only used when necessary and that this right spectrum drug, dose, and duration are chosen when they are needed. So in both cases, the ultimate goal is to optimize patient care and safety while minimizing the potential for harm, and not just to the specific patient, but for the public at large. Why is recognizing the gap between the patient's need for pain management and access to treatment so important? The opioid crisis and our response to it has resulted in some significant unintended but predictable consequences for both doctors and patients. The various government regulations are really blunt instruments, such as the DEA enforcing quotas about how many pills can be manufactured and distributed, and then state agencies enforcing documentation rules that make it more difficult and treacherous for doctors to prescribe opiates. Even our lawmakers have become involved, for example, limiting the duration of an acute pain prescription to 10 days without a reevaluation. So by law, in Texas, any acute prescription, such as a post-surgical or post-injury, can't even be refilled without an in-person reevaluation. Unfortunately, there are many chronic pain patients who are only one provider switch away from having no access to medications that they have become dependent on. Sometimes we use a term opioid refugees. For patients who lost access to their pain medications, we need to ask ourselves more often, how many patients are on regimens that no other prescriber could or would continue if and when we are not able to do so? When are opiates appropriate for chronic pain or are they? Well, that's a very controversial question. Uh, one national expert that I saw used the word rarely, and then later had to retract that after a significant backlash from chronic pain groups. So this is not a discussion that you'll be able to have in front of a group without getting some very strong divergent opinions about uh, opioids and chronic pain. In general, Opiates are generally reserved for severe chronic pain that is not relieved by other non-opioid medications or non-pharmacologic treatments. And now they are often used for chronic pain related to cancer or its treatment. People sometimes don't understand why cancer pain is different, but it's not different. It's just that cancer patients simply have a higher benefit to risk ratio and unfortunately, a, a shorter window in terms of when they'll 
how long they'll be using the opioids. For a palliative care and the end-of-life care, comfort is a priority, and opioids may be used to manage chronic pain there. Short-term use, opioids may be considered for short-term use a few days or a few weeks in certain cases of non-cancer chronic pain. And finally, uh, when there's a non-response to other treatments, if other treatments have failed to provide adequate pain relief and the patient's quality of life is significantly impacted, opioids may be considered. So in other words, they should be a last resort and not the go-to thing that ends up being the case for much of pain management. I tell my patients that short-acting, full-agonist opiates like hydrocodone or oxycodone, the most common ones, are kind of the junk foods of pain management. They are fast, they're cheap, and they're very satisfying, but probably not good for you long-term. And it also explains why some practices use them a lot more than others, or why we use them at all. It's like going to a restaurant and asking them why they have such unhealthy food on the menu. It's because that's what people want, but you probably shouldn't eat there every day. That's a good analogy. In the webinars, you share a slide from Dr. A.J. Manhapra that shows most patients are in the gray area between early dependence and clear addiction. Can we touch on this? Traditionally, we look at opioid use disorder or addiction as being present or not present, a black and white dividing line that has distinctly separate treatment options. Uh, this is especially important from a regulatory standpoint as we have had laws on the books for 100 years separating addiction treatment from other types of medical care. Not only do we have different names for them, we have different medications, we have different facilities, and even different doctors providing the treatment. Most of our patients, though, who have issues in pain management exist in a gray area between simple dependence and addiction, and they're, they're developing a tolerance their behaviors are becoming more concerning. And we sometimes call this gray area complex persistent dependence. Another term for this that is being proposed is pre-addiction or prescription medication dependence with the addiction term being reserved for people who have significant loss of control or ability to function. So pre-addiction is kind of like pre-diabetes. It's something on a path to diabetes, but not uh, meeting the definition of diabetes. That's a great point, and screening is really important. So if you're prescribing a controlled substance, should screening be done at every visit? Well, it is mandatory to do screening before starting opioids, and then it's also mandatory to periodically monitor the patient for uh, red flag behavior. So I so yes, the screening should be done regularly and not just refill the medications. And so these tools that we have for screening are administered on a periodic basis in the office. So screening is important. And a screening tool you talk about in the webinars is the TAPS screening tool. That's tobacco, alcohol, prescription medicine, and other substance use tool. Is it free for use and can it integrate into an EHR? Also, is the data or responses collected? And if so, who accessed the data and how is it used? 
So that tool, uh, which is relatively new, is developed by the NIH, and it can be utilized just by searching NIH TAPS, T-A-P-S, and you'll see the tool <clears throat> pop up, and it's just a form that can be either filled out by the patient and then sent to the practitioner, or it can be done by staff member by asking the questions and entering in. And at the end of the evaluation, there it generates a report that summarizes the findings, and then that report can be emailed from the website to an email address. And it's important to note, there's no identifying information that it asks. The website doesn't know who's filling it out, who it's for, unless someone puts in something in a subject line, some kind of identifier, then that is anonymous. And then when the report is received, it can be printed out or saved, then it could be tagged with an identifier and then just put into the electronic medical record. So the tool combines screening and brief assessment for common unused substances and eliminates the need for multiple screening tools. The worst thing that's about some of these screening tools is that they are terribly out of date and they ask questions that are not relevant and they do sound dated sometimes. Uh, this provides a two-stage brief assessment and then where well, there's a screen and a brief assessment. So again, can be self-administered by the patient and with a link send to the office. It uses an electronic format as an online tool and it works pretty well on the smartphone. And it asks about the frequency of substance use in the past 12 months. And then it facilitates a brief assessment of the past three months of use in patients who have uh, used substances. Uh, again, it can be printed or emailed from the website by the person who enters the information. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't store anything, and you do not have to enter in any identifying information. And the practice can print or take the form and put on an identifier and import it into the chart. Now, how do you bill for substance use disorder screening, counseling, and intervention? So that will depend on the, the type of the screening and the payer involved, and it varies. For example, the screening that's done prior to prescribing opioids may or may not be able to be separately billed. But there are examples, for example, screening and intervention for smoking and nicotine can be billed as long as a certain criteria are met about how that intervention is done. Are there barriers to clinicians using the drug screening or urine drug tests? like the cost to the practice. Is this reimbursed or paid for by the insurance companies and by Medicaid and Medicare? So there can be definitely be barriers to obtaining appropriate urine drug tests. The lower cost in-office or presumptive uh, dip tests are not very expensive, but they're not sensitive enough to detect some of the more concerning drugs of abuse, such as fentanyl or kratom, and are not specific enough to make any hard and fast decisions on the results due to a high rate of false positives. So usually important results do need to be confirmed with uh, more expensive confirmatory testing. And there is no simple profile for a patient who may encounter an illicitly manufactured pill that looks exactly like what they got from the pharmacy. They don't have to have bought them from the street. They often don't even know that these are counterfeit pills. They may have been borrowed from a trusted friend or a family member, and that family member not, may not even know. 
So often insurance companies are looking for some kind of risk that the patient has that warrants this more sensitive testing. And the fact is that these days, all pain management patients are at risk for uh, encountering counterfeit pills. In talking with patients about results of confirmatory tests, you made a point to avoid using words or terms that stigmatize. Why is that important? And what are some terms that should be avoided and what might be better terms instead? For example, we try not to use the terms dirty or clean to refer to the urine tests. We use terms like inconsistent or consistent. We try to avoid the term addict or even addiction in that that is a stigmatizing term for patients who are in, in pain management. Uh, sometimes we use words like complex dependence or dependence. Even the word abuse has negative connotations. We sometimes use the word misuse. I like to use the word red flag to signify certain behaviors rather than drug seeking or doctor shopping or lying. And even the term opioid stewardship is a way to reduce the stigma of calling what I do addictionology or addiction medicine, which does trigger strong reactions among patients who are taking opioids for pain management. Patients and their families are well aware of the opioid crisis, and they have seen references in popular culture like the Dope Sick TV series, and they don't want their use of opioids to be associated with the opioid crisis in any way. Dr. Chen, thank you for talking with me today. If there was one thing you wanted primary care physicians or other clinical providers to know or take away, what would that be? To think about induced abstinence, that is stopping someone's pain medication abruptly. That is a treatment plan, and that may solve the problem for the prescriber, but it rarely solves the problem for the patient. And it's a treatment plan that is associated with some very poor outcomes, including forcing the patient to turn to illicit sources of opioids, such as illicit pills for relief. And so I encourage everyone to keep in mind that there are usually many correct ways to address aberrant or red flag behaviors in pain management, but there's really only one definitely wrong way, and that's to ignore it. So uh, rather than terminate the patient and inducing abstinence, just document what you have noticed, what you're going to do to address the issue and not to ignore it, but also not to abandon the patient. All right. Thank you again, Dr. Chen. To our listeners, link to the CME programs until discussed are included in the episode description. To claim CME for this episode, just click on Claim CME and follow the instructions provided. We hope you found this episode beneficial. Remember to like and follow TMA Practice Well to receive every episode. Until next time, stay well.